few years ago, I preached a revival over in a, a um, kind of an army church in Milton Hall, England. And while I was over there, I visited around in London for a day. And I went into uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And when you walk in that magnificent structure, the thing that stands out is the magnificent life-size picture by Holman Hunt. It's the familiar one that uh, you know about and have seen. There's this door, gigantic door, and vines and weeds are growing up on the outside of it. Obviously, it hasn't been opened in quite a while. And there is the Christ standing before the door, and his left hand is a lantern raised, and his right hand is in a fist, and he's ready to rap on the door. And the title of the famous painting by Holman Hunt is The Light of the World. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and will open the door, I will come in to him, sup with him, he with me. Now I know that, that the real and first application of these words is to the church. It is directed toward the apostate church. But with a fine sense of exegetical appropriateness, you can take the principle that's involved in these words and make personal, individual application of them. I am struck this morning by the fact that Jesus would be outside the church, a church that is influential without influence, wealthy but poor, proud but pitiable. I confront the possibility this morning that there can be a church that is so interested, so caught up in its own wealth, in its own successes, in its own power, and feels that it has need of nothing, and at the same time, Christ stands on the outside of that church and seeks admission. I am confronted by that incredible thought. It's appalling, but possible. And I am tempted this morning to speak to that application of this text because it is true that sometimes Jesus is excluded from the church and he's outside seeking admission. But I resist that temptation and I want to pass on from that to the personal and individual application of this text for there are really two. And I want us to see what happens when Jesus is allowed into every room of one's life. I want us to look at the potential or the possibility of allowing Jesus Christ admission into every room of one's life. I want us to see how we do it and what happens when we do. And so I've divided the thoughts of this text into three I want us to see him who is outside knocking, the divine speaker, then the divine searcher, and then at the end I want us to look at him as the divine Savior. 
First of all, the divine speaker. These things, saith the Lord, is the word of our text. The most astounding, staggering declaration that has ever been made, perhaps, is this. God has spoken to man. For all of the things that we could say about God, this may be the most astounding that God is a self-revealing, disclosing, self-disclosing God with a word for man. And then he describes the three ways in which God speaks to man. First of all, he speaks with the voice of reliability. Thus says the Amen. For the God of Hebrew thought was often called the God of the Amen. And that word was often placed at the end of some statement or declaration to guarantee and to assure its importance and validity. So when he says that God is the God of the Amen, he means that God is a God who is utterly dependable and completely reliable. Every word, every promise of His Word is absolutely dependable. You can stake your life on it. What God has said will just be that way. I was pastoring a little seminary church out when I was in the seminaries down in Hamilton, Texas. And I had this retired Baptist preacher in my congregation and he just loved to hear preaching. I mean, any kind of preaching. Just, you know, even by those seminary students. He thought that was good. He just loved preaching. And he just got all worked up in every service and he was an amener. He put an amen at the end of every sentence. He just got excited about the Word of God. And at seminary preaching class one day, I learned a new technique in, in sermon uh, delivery. And so I took it down. I was going to try it out on my folks down in Hamilton, Texas. And I made up these sentences, these statements, and each one of them were false. And I was going to make these long, this long list of false statements and then I was going to say, is that true? And then, of course, it wasn't true. I was going to then make application of the truth. And so I made all of these false statements run right after another and paused and said, is that true? And he said, amen. <laughs> and I uh, had a little bit of problem uh, <laughs> from there on. The amen was out of place and unreliable, but not this amen, not this amen. God is utterly dependable and reliable, and every promise of His Word is just the way it's going to be. There may not be many folk you can depend on, but you can depend on Him. He's the God of the amen. And he speaks with the voice of reality. For the text says he is the faithful and true witness that is true as opposed to false and artificiality. What is really genuine? There's so much artificiality and fakery. 
And so when he says that he's the faithful and true witness, he is saying this, stop reaching for those things that are like mirages that will fade before you grasp them and let Jesus Christ into your life for He is genuine through and through. He's reality. And the things of God are reality. And He speaks with a voice of vitality. He is the beginning, said the text, of the creation of God. Now I know it sounds like what that means is that Jesus was the first of God's creation. It doesn't mean that at all. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. What it means is that He is the moving cause of creation and the source of life. It means that life flows out from the life giver who is Christ Himself and His energizing power sustains that life. It means that a man doesn't have life until he has Christ. A group of college students in a college newspaper ran a contest asking that they, that they give a definition for life and the winning definition of life would receive a prize. There were three finalists. These are the definitions. Life is a joke that isn't funny. Number two, life is a disease, the cure for which only is death. Number three, life is the sentence for the crime of being born. And so a man wrote John Henry Jowett that letter filled with despair and the same kind of frustration and fatalism as described in those words by those college students. And he signed his letter with the Greek word thanatos, the Greek word for death. I'm here to declare to you this morning that if you open up the life, your life, to the presence of Jesus Christ, He gives life and it's rich and abundant and full. And then the text says that Jesus not only is the divine speaker, He is the divine searcher. I know your works, He said. I know you through and through. For He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows you better than your husband or your wife knows you. He knows you better than your parents know you. He knows you through and through. And there is no secret that's hidden to Him. He is the divine searcher. And He thus describes three things He knows about us in the text. First, he knows our half-heartedness. He said, you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. He knows that we have lost the ability to feel intensely. He knows that we have lost the burning heart. He knows 
that we cannot feel intensely. We cannot weep when we hear of the cross and we cannot tremble when we hear of holiness. He knows our half-heartedness. And I think that means that he, that he understands that we have no real distinctiveness or definitiveness as a Christian, some of us. In essence, what he is suggesting is, if you're going to be a Christian, be a Christian. If you're going to bear the name of Christ, if you're going to have that profession, then give that expression. If you're going to be God's people, for God's sake, be God's kind of people. Have you ever drunk a, 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 a cup of coffee that was cold? Somebody tried one down in the kitchen this morning, hadn't percolated uh, entirely, so it was cold, and spit it out, put the cup down. And have you ever drunk a Coke that was lukewarm, was warm and not cold? And have you ever seen a Christian who bears the name of Christ but does not bear the likeness of Him? I know your half-heartedness. Secondly, he said, I know your high-mindedness. You say, I have need of nothing. What a... What a contrast is that to what Paul said, this mighty man of God. And he said, It is not that I have yet attained, but I keep pressing toward the prize of the high calling. For what this text suggests in this church is this feeling. I have arrived. There is no further for me to go. I'm reading a book called entitled Strong at the Broken Places. It's the story of Max Cleland, the uh, director of the Veterans Administration in Washington right now. He's a paraplegic. 27 years old, he went to Vietnam as a captain in the service. He was ascending, he was dynamic, athletic, tremendous young man, worked in Washington for a year, volunteered for active duty in Vietnam. Got off of, jumped off of a helicopter in the midst of the battle in Vietnam, saw a grenade lying on the ground, thought he'd dropped his, reached down, picked it up, blew his arms off, blew his legs off. They brought him back to the States, placed him in what is called the pit in Walter Reed Hospital in, in Washington, D.C. Stayed there for months. Talks about the trauma of coming back from living death talks about the trauma of breaking away from the drugs that he'd lived on for several months, talks about the loneliness and despair. And in the end of the book, it tells about one day picking up a piece of paper, finding these words on it, just turn loose and let God. And there in that hospital room, he decided, here I am at the broken place. Here I am at the end of my rope, at the end of life and he turned to God and found him. I'm here to tell you this morning that the greatest day of your life may be the day when you're on your knees smiting your breast and crying, God, be merciful to me, for we are just beggars. He knows our high-mindedness. And then the text said that he knows our hunger. He said, 
buy of me. What is the transaction? What is the currency? It means give your life to me and I will give you, I will present to you gold that's tried in the fire. I think that refers to spiritual values. For Laodicea was the banking capital of that part of the world and they had to transact those transactions monetary and financial transactions in a way to get the best value. Let Jesus Christ into every room of your life and you'll discover what is of real value. And he says, buy of me white raiment. I think that refers to spiritual virtues. I think it means to be clothed in the fruits of the Spirit to be Christ-like. And so if you turn sometime to the epistles of Paul, he talks about putting aside the old garment and putting on the new, the virtues of Jesus. And then he said, take eye salve so that you can see. I think that refers to spiritual vision, to be able to see the mysteries of God and have compassion as you look on the world around you. I know you're hungry. He is the divine speaker, the divine searcher. But now if you've gone to sleep, I want you to wake up and get the last, the most important. He is the divine Savior. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Look at that saving posture. I stand at the door. He wants to enter every door of our life, doesn't he? He wants to enter the spiritual door and dwell in the Spirit. He wants to enter your social door to make you a better parent, a better husband, a better wife, a better child. He wants to enter your vocational door. I remind you that before Jesus began His ministry, He spent 30 years in a carpenter shop. He knows what it means to sweat. And he's able to take that which seems monotonous and make it momentous. I tell you, in Jesus Christ, if he's in control of the vocation, there is something royal in the rut of the routine. He wants to enter the vocational door. He wants to enter the recreational door. He wants to be involved in the games you play. One missionary tells about a mission school in, in South Africa and they had a young boy there on scholarship playing basketball. He was a tremendous athlete, but he was just the kind of the rebel of the group. He wasn't a Christian. And he said that one day in chapel service that was compulsory for the students at the Christian school, the Holy Spirit came in power upon that service and that young man received Christ. That night, they played against the, uh, the arch rival in basketball. The tip went to this young boy. He dribbled down the court, weaving in and out, came up, leaped up, and made two points, the first two points of the game. W went running down the court, lifted up his hands like this, and said, Look at that, Jesus, two points. I want you to know that Jesus is even concerned about the games you play. And so I heard that when Harvard and Princeton were battling out on the football field 
and Harvard scored the winning touchdown. The band didn't, the band didn't start to play the fight song. They played the hallelujah chorus. For there is nothing in this world that is outside the realm of the concern of God. He wants to enter every door. Saving posture. Notice his saving patience. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it's linear action. And it means, behold, I stand at the door and I knock and I keep on knocking. If I'd been knocking at the door of my own heart, I would have turned away a long time ago, but not him. Thank God, not him. Praise God he didn't. For he's never in a hurry and he's never late. He takes just as long as necessary to gain admission. He just keeps on knocking. And sometime when we think we have him closed out and the door is shut and we're secured from him, then in the loneliness and the privacy of our own spirit, we hear that knock again. He just keeps on knocking. So Francis Thompson said, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my mind and in my tears and under running laughter, I fled those feet that kept following after. And he just keeps on knocking. I was preaching revival in Wenatchee, Washington, beautiful apple orchard capital of the world. And the pastor wanted me to go visit in this home. And I went out one morning, Tuesday morning of the revival. It was cold and rainy. And we went in this house and there was a woman and her daughter, married daughter, living there and at home. And so I shared with them the gospel and they were, they were saved. They came to the service that night to make public profession of faith their decision. And the husband of the, of the, of the, elder, the older woman and the husband of the married daughter were there and they sat right on the second seat and oh, they were, they were haughty. They were so insulted. They had to come to the service with their spouse. And when they came forward to make public their decision, these two men, they just, oh, they acted like they were just so angry. I met them at the back of the, at the, back of the church at the end of the service, and they, wouldn't, they would hardly speak. But the next afternoon, I went over to visit them. And I'll never forget it. He worked for Al Alcoa Aluminum, and we were sitting around the table after work. And I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. He was hard of hearing. This is what he said. He said, every time, ever since that boy, and he pointed to a teenager that lived in the home also, he said, ever since that boy was a baby, I've been hearing God call me in the night. He said, sometimes he calls me with an audible voice. Sometimes... It's an inaudible voice, but I know that somebody's calling me in the night. I said, that's the Lord knocking at your heart. Would you be saved? He said, I will. I said, let me help you pray. You pray this prayer after me if it's what you really mean, if it's what you really feel in your own heart. He said, I, sometime I can't understand you. I said, well, don't feel, you know, 
alone in that. I said, let, let me just pray the prayer, and then your wife will pray the prayer, and you can understand her, and she'll help us. And they agreed. So on the, around the table, we bowed our heads, and I started to pray. I'd say a sentence. she say say the same sentence. He said the next, he said the sentence. And before I could say another sentence, the teenager started praying, said the sentence. And when the prayer was over, everybody around that table had come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Behold, I stand at the door and knock and keep on knocking. Let me tell you, my friends, that inner voice that you hear, that knock you hear, will never, never go away. Notice finally, his saving purpose. Now the text suggests that his saving purpose is twofold. Just reread these with me, would you please? Beginning verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. His purpose for entering our life is for our spiritual enrichment. Now notice, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. His purpose for coming into our life is for our spiritual enthronement. So he wants to enter our life for our spiritual enrichment and for our spiritual enthronement. Let me speak to those and then I'm through. I will come in and he will sup with me. If you've traveled in Europe, you know that there are three times that you eat. In the morning, it's just a little bread hurrying on your way. At noon, you stop for, for tea and maybe some tea cakes about one o'clock in the afternoon. But in the evenings, when you sit down and you dine, you sup with one another and fellowship. And that's very important. That's the idea that's involved here. He said, I want to come into your life and I want you to have fellowship with me. I want to give you what I have to give you. I want you to receive from me. And that's amazing in itself, but that's not the greatest idea of this text. You turn that around, he said, and I will sup with him, which means that he not only wants to be our host, he wants to be our guest. He not only wants us to receive from him, he wants to receive from us. And that's the most astounding thing that's in this text. That I would have anything that he would want. When I was in high school, my pastor's name was Grady Allison. He was a great preacher and a sophisticated man. And his wife was uh, named Glorietta, and her father was Dr. Travis, Arthur Travis, who uh, was pastor for many years at the great Gamble Street Baptist Church in Fort Worth. And she was just the epitome of sophistication in a little old country town, Monday, Texas. And I surrendered to preach when I was a senior and went off to Hardin-Simmons and he came down to my church in Abilene to preach a revival. And I was just, Margaret and I were married at that, we married then, we still are, but we were, we, we'd already married. And, and we wanted to have them over for, for dinner one night. Now, now, can you imagine that? 
in my little old uh, apartment house, seminary apartment, which were just old barracks from Camp Barkley, and we had our old used furniture, and they were going to come over and eat dinner with us. And so we were really going to fix it up. We went down and bought pork chops. Now, you can't beat that, you know, so we went and got pork chops. And we had uh, Grady Allison and Glorietta over to eat with us. And they came in. They could have been eating steaks in the nicest steakhouse in Abilene. But they came in and sat down in our little two-room apartment. And they ate our pork chops. And I thought after they left, isn't it fantastic that a man like that would come and receive of me? Oh, I tell you, I thought about it all this week. How much you have to offer to God and how much He wants what you have. He wants to come in for spiritual enrichment. And He wants to come in for your spiritual enthronement. I tell you, it's a king's life, isn't it? Grant that you may sit on my throne, enthronement. And so He came to Zacchaeus' house, little old four foot eight man, when Jesus walked outside with Zacchaeus at His side. Zacchaeus felt like he was 10 feet tall, walking tall, stepping high. For the life that Christ gives is a king's life, is throne life, is victorious life. Enthronement. Can you imagine? Have you gotten a word? Were you invited to the inauguration? Just suppose that you got this invitation. Next week, I want you to sit with me when I meet my cabinet. And I want you to be at my right hand when the cabinet comes in to meet. And I want you to be there at my side when I am inaugurated. And I want you to be there to give me counsel when decisions are made and I begin my presidency. You wouldn't wait five minutes to get your reservation. I can tell you something greater than that. He wants us to sit at His right hand. And He wants us to know of His counsel and His will. He who rules the world. Enthronement. And so a little girl saw the picture of Holman Hunt and Jesus knocking at the door. And she said to her mother, I know why they didn't hear Jesus knock. Why didn't they hear Jesus knock? Because they were down in the basement. I want you to come out of the basement this morning. And I want you to hear Jesus knock at the door of your life. Now listen carefully. What, a, what an audience. How rapt and how attentive. Listen carefully. Have you ever opened up your life to Jesus Christ for the first time? Have you ever invited Him in to your life? I'm not talking about being baptized. I'm not talking about joining the church. I'm talking about allowing Jesus Christ to come into your life. 
Have you ever done that? Boys and girls, listen. Have you ever said to Jesus, I want you to come into my life today? Have you ever done that? Listen carefully to me now. I ask you who are already sure of that decision, how many doors are there in your life where he stands outside? And how many areas of your life are there from which he has been excluded? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And there may be some of you need to come this morning to say, I want Jesus Christ to take control of every area of my life. There may be some who would say, Pastor, pray with me. I want to receive Christ into my heart. I will call upon Him. I will invite Him in. There may be others who just need to come and place their life here and serve God with us at First Baptist Church. Would you join me in prayer? After we've prayed, we'll invite you to open the door to Him. Father, we know that you stand outside the door of a man's life until he invites you in. And you knock and keep on knocking. And you call and you keep on calling. You seek admission. And there's some, it's evident, Father, in this place who have never invited Christ into their life. And I pray for the courage this morning and the faith to say, Jesus, come into my life and make me new and reside and preside over every part of me emotional, physical, spiritual, mental. And there are some of us in the church, Father, who have excluded Him and His will and His desires and His purpose for us. And our life is not enriched by His presence daily. And it's not enthroned in victory. And so I pray that you'll allow us this morning the courage to break down the door, to open up to every part of us, your being, your life. I pray, Father, that this invitation will bring glory to, the, to you and growth to your kingdom. And I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake.